means it is time for the latest edition of the Global and the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. I, as always, am Tim Horgan, the Executive Director of the Council, and your navigator on this journey through the litany of international issues. This month, we start off with a discussion about the situation in northeastern Syria, where the Turkish government has moved in to create a safe zone to resettle Syrian refugees they have been housing. The only problem is, this is forcing out ethnic Kurds who live in the region and were vital partners for the U.S. in the fight against ISIS. We also take a look at a happier story, where a visit to New Hampshire from a U.S. Department of State International Visitor Leadership Program has led to a strong, positive partnership between NGOs in India and New Hampshire. Important and interesting stuff for sure. We appreciate you taking the time to listen in. Feel free to give us feedback on this episode and others, as we would love to hear about the issues and topics you are interested in. Protection Unit, or YPG, was working alongside the U.S. Special Forces in northern and eastern Syria to capture territory from ISIS. That is Dr. Melinda Negron-Gonzalez, Associate Professor at the University of New Hampshire, talking about the current situation in northeastern Syria and how the U.S. allied themselves with Kurdish fighters. But who exactly are the Kurds? The Kurds are an ethnic minority in northern Syria that has created a number of political parties and militia groups. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, particularly your interests in Turkey? Sure. Uh, I'm a professor of political science, and one of my areas of specialization is Turkish studies. And I study Turkish social movements, including the Kurdish nationalist movement in Turkey. Since Turkey and the U.S. have designated the Kurdish People's Protection Units as terrorist organization, why were we working with them in Syria? So in 2014, ISIS was rapidly gaining territory in both Iraq and Syria. And at the time, the U.S. government was training and equipping various militant groups in Syria to counter ISIS's rise in Syria specifically. And in 2014, there was a siege of a town on the Turkey-Syria border called Kobani. And long story short, the YPG forces, those ethnic Kurdish forces, were trying to stave off an ISIS capture of the town. And throughout the international press, there were stories of an imminent slaughter by ISIS of the Kurdish townspeople. And so Turkey refused to intervene on behalf of the Kurds, and the U.S. decided to provide air cover for the YPG forces, and that's how the relationship began between the YPG forces and the U.S. Special Forces. And of course, it develops further over the years where U.S. Special Forces begin to work alongside YPG forces in northern and eastern Syria to rid the territory of ISIS. And it seems like they've been a pretty strong, reliable partner in the fight against ISIS. Do they have a background that lends them to being a good partner in that fight? Yes. So the YPG forces, and this is the root of the controversy, are linked to the Kurdistan Workers Party of Turkey. 
Now, the PKK, as its Kurdish acronym is, PKK forces in Turkey have been fighting against Turkish forces since the mid-1980s, since 1984, and they've been carrying out an insurgency for about 35 years. So they're tested militants who are linked to the YPG forces in Syria. And so there's been decades there of training and experience that has been provided to YPG forces in Syria. So that's part of the reason why they were designated as a terrorist organization by the U.S. Can you talk a little bit more about that decision? Sure. So the PKK, or Kurdistan Workers' Party of Turkey, was designated a terrorist organization by the U.S. in 1997, and also by the European Union, I believe, in 2002. And so Turkey, the U.S., and the EU all regard the PKK as a terrorist organization because it's been carrying out this insurgency against Turkey. The YPG forces are newer, but they are connected to the PYD, which is the Syrian Democratic Union Party, which is, in fact, under the PKK's umbrella. So there is a clear link between the PKK and the YPG militant group and its sister political organization, the PYD. And so what the U.S. did under the Obama administration was to argue that the YPG forces were not exactly PKK, and they sort of glossed over any organizational uh, relationships that exist between the YPG forces and the PKK forces, but that was not very convincing to the Turks, which regard the, the YPG basically as the Syrian branch of the PKK. So that decision in 2014 to work with the PKK is really at the heart of this continually strained relationship between the U.S. and Turkey. Yes, to work with the YPG, which is linked to the PKK, but it's an open debate as to how much operational control the PKK has over the YPG. Turkey says they're essentially the same organization. The U.S. says, well, they're distinct. The truth is probably somewhere in between. Would it be the first time that the U.S. worked with people that we did not necessarily fully agree with? A few weeks ago, the U.S. pulled their forces away from the Syrian Democratic Forces controlled areas in northeastern Syria. Why was there such a backlash from both sides of the aisle uh, when you have such a dichotomy between good, reliable partners, also known as terrorist organizations? So the Syrian Democratic Forces, or the SDF, are led by YPG forces. The SDF itself at this point is actually an Arab-majority organization of militants, but it's still dominated by Kurdish YPG leadership. And so Turkey regards the SDF more broadly, the umbrella group, as basically PKK also, and has been pushing President Trump for over a year now to create a safe zone that would basically achieve two goals for Turkey, rid its border of YPG elements and also provide a space for them to relocate Syrian refugees. And so finally, on October 6th, I believe it was, President Erdogan convinced President Trump to go ahead and pull back U.S. special forces from that border area so that Turkey could move in and eliminate YPG forces. This was a really abrupt reversal of policy 
because only in August, mid-August, the Trump administration and Turkey had agreed to engage in joint patrols in some of that border area in order to allay Turkey's fears about the YPG threats. And it seemed that that was working okay for a while, though the Turks kept pushing for an actual safe zone free of all YPG or SDF elements. And so finally, Trump granted that, and it was seen as this shocking abandonment of our Kurdish allies is a word that's been used a lot in the Western press. And the problem, of course, is that Turkey is a NATO ally, and it's a treaty ally, and the U.S. basically armed and trained and worked alongside a NATO ally's most significant security threat, the YPG or the SDF forces. And so finally, Turkey was the big winner of that decision. And it was hugely controversial, mostly because of the way it was done in such an abrupt fashion. And it really left the SDF forces vulnerable to an imminent Turkish invasion. And the Kurdish people have a terrible history in all of the countries in which they reside of crimes against humanity and, and genocide and gross human rights violations against their communities. And the Turkish government has a history of gross human rights violations and crimes against humanity against Kurds in Turkey. So the fear was justified on behalf of the uh, Kurdish communities in northern Syria. And basically, the U.S. sort of left them out to fend for themselves. And of course, predictably, they went running to the Russians and the Assad regime for cover from the Turks. You mentioned human rights abuses, genocide. I hear a lot in the news about potential for genocide against the Kurds, particularly in this area. Do you see that as something that's forthcoming, or have we reached sort of a balance point? There have been war crimes committed by Turkey and Turkey-backed Free Syrian Army rebel groups in this area and, and during the past several weeks. As far as ethnic cleansing goes, it's hard to tell. It is true that the Turks have a plan to relocate Syrian refugees who are not from that area of Syria, actually. And that would lead to the forced displacement of ethnic Kurds who reside in the area, in which case Turkey's plan sounds like ethnic cleansing, but it remains to be seen if they're going to be able to actually implement that plan they have. And so it's hard to say that ethnic cleansing is happening right now, mostly because ethnic cleansing, crimes against humanity, genocide, et cetera, I mean, are legal terms. And so there are certainly things that have happened. The horrific murder of the Syrian Kurdish leader that's been in the news a lot. There are certainly horrific things that have taken place, but it's difficult to say that there are widespread crimes against humanity currently taking place. And now that the Russians and the Turks have agreed to go ahead and patrol the area, Perhaps there will be more order and less people leaving their towns and villages. So a few days ago, the administration announced that the leader of ISIS, al-Baghdadi, was killed over the weekend. It seems that the Kurds were pretty instrumental in getting us to find him. Why are we still working with them? And does this signal any sort of reversal of policies or anything like that? It's clear that the operation to get al-Baghdadi goes back to the summer, 
before Trump's policy reversal. And so clearly SDF forces, because they're on the ground, played a significant role in acquiring intel, etc. It's unclear at this point what this portends for the U.S. SDF relationship moving forward, because you know, Trump is pretty committed in withdrawing all U.S. troops from Syria and has only recently agreed to a residual force to protect some oil resources in Syria. And so I think at this point, from what I've been reading in the press from that region, the Kurds really feel like the U.S. quote-unquote stabbed them in the back. And They don't have a lot of trust now in the Trump administration, so I think they're trying to decide whether it makes more sense for them to stick with the Russians and the Assad regime in order to get some cover from Turkey or to continue talking to the Americans. I mean, the leader of the SDF forces said that he would like to continue working with the U.S. to counter ISIS in Syria but it's clear that they have lost trust in the Trump administration. We are in the midst of a Russian-negotiated ceasefire that seems to be holding for now. What is the situation on the ground looking like? Yes, it seems that Russia and Turkey have found a way to allow Turkey to consolidate its gains during Operation Peace Spring in the past couple of weeks, but also prevent Turkey from moving forward to create its larger safe zone. And so what remains to be seen is what happens to Kurdish self-rule in areas beyond the agreed-upon Turkey-Russia border area that they're patrolling together. And at some point... The YPG forces, as well as the SDC, the governing authority in that area, will have to have some kind of negotiations with the Assad government as the war winds down. It's clear that Assad and Russia are the big winners ultimately. And so even if President Assad doesn't play a significant role in a post-conflict Syria, it remains to be seen if the Kurds will enjoy self-rule and some kind of autonomous government in northern Syria because the YPG or the PYD, political organization, has been excluded from the Geneva process because of Turkey's veto, basically, And so the de facto government that they have built in that region for the past several years will probably at some point either be dissolved or in some way transformed into some kind of a regional government. But it's clear that without U.S. assistance, this governing authority that was created, what people call the Rojava government, doesn't really have a strong ally in its corner. So even if the Kurds end up getting some kind of autonomous region, it's unclear that the forces that aided the U.S., the YPG forces, SDF forces more broadly, are actually going to enjoy a privileged position in that kind of a regional arrangement. And one final question for you. How does the way the administration handled the pullout make it more difficult for the U.S. to be seen as a reliable partner worldwide? Certainly. The U.S. reversed course 
in a highly controversial and dramatic fashion that was a surprise to not only the people on the ground in Syria, but much of Washington. I mean, on the one hand, Trump had been clearly saying that he wanted to end America's involvement in quote-unquote endless wars in the Middle East, and he had been clearly saying for a while that he wanted to withdraw U.S. troops after ISIS was defeated. And so it wasn't surprising that this was Trump's preferred outcome. It was just the way in which it was implemented. It seemed rash and did not give our partners on the ground in Syria any kind of you know, warning. And so it certainly undermines American credibility in the region and in the world more broadly. You know, Trump is already seen as an erratic president. That's not just a democratic talking point. That just is how he is seen around the world for various reasons, including pulling the U.S. out of the Iranian nuclear deal, pulling the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Agreement, etc. And so this simply adds to the list of things that the Trump administration has done that really walks back American policy and does so in a way that seems to forfeit American power and influence in a region where the U.S. has historically seen itself as the mover and shaker, as a hegemon to determine outcomes in the Middle East. And now we're sort of hanging back and ceding some of that to the Russians. And that makes a lot of people in Washington uncomfortable. And then the way that it was implemented undermines America's credibility, especially to its partners moving forward. So if the U.S. is going to stick with this proxy strategy, as it's called, of working through proxies in places to counter ISIS or al-Qaeda, then other groups may think twice about working alongside the Americans in the future to counter ISIS or al-Qaeda. Well, thank you so much for giving us some of your time. I know there's a lot for you to be thinking about and, and working on it on this topic, so we really appreciate your time. Thank you so National Visitor Leadership Program is managed by the U.S. Department of State. It brings up-and-coming leaders to the U.S. for three-week-long study tours in their area's professional interest. Back in June of 2018, a group from India had the opportunity to visit the Freedom Cafe in Durham, New Hampshire, to learn about how this nonprofit cafe is working to combat human trafficking around the world. An amazing partnership has been created from this program, and I visited the cafe to learn a little more. based nonprofit working on educating people about human trafficking meets with a nonprofit leader from India who has dreamed of starting a similar program back home. That is what we set out to explore at the Freedom Cafe in Durham, New Hampshire. The Freedom Cafe is a nonprofit cafe with a mission to end human trafficking. That is Brian Desset, president and executive director of the cafe. We do that by creating this space to connect with our community 
serve consciously sourced fair trade items for recommended donation and raise funds to support projects that entry and trafficking. Brian first became involved in the council a couple of years ago through the International Visitor Leadership Program, meeting with a group learning about nonprofit organizations and how to build support. In June of 2018, the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire sent a group from India to talk with the cafe about combating human trafficking. It's been really neat to connect with these leaders from around the globe. And, and the group that came from India, particularly because there was such a strong connection, we just had conversation about the different work that they were doing, the work that we were doing, and the dreams and goals that we have. One of the visitors on this program, Bonnie Das, co-founder of Kranti, was particularly taken by the idea behind the Freedom Cafe, having had a similar idea back home. The connection was almost instantaneous. It felt like there was this moment of inspiration that we both felt maybe there could be a connection here, that we are looking to expand our programming and we want to be directly connected to growing work directly with survivors and directly with vulnerable populations. And Bonnie shared that there were a couple of young people in the program in Cranty that had a dream of starting a cafe. And so we just shared that moment and shared our contact information and didn't know where that was going to go. And then um, it was in April of 2019 that I had an email come in with a proposal for having Ashi and Chitel join us here in New Hampshire. Ashi and Chitel are two young women who have come to New Hampshire to intern at the Freedom Cafe and to learn the ins and outs of running such a program. They joined us for this meeting as well. I came to Kranti when I was 16 years old. This is Ashi, one of the two women here at the cafe. I used to live in Red Light District with my, there was a sex worker uh, who raised me up when my mom used to work. So I used to live with her and her partner. I finished my 10th and my older sister was in uh, Kranti. So she came uh, and then when she was actually coming to US for her studies, then when she moved to US, I came to Kranti. So it's been almost eight, seven, eight years now. Sheetal is also a member of Kranti and here to learn more about how to run such a cafe. I came to Kranti when I was 17 years old. So my mother was a bar dancer in Mumbai's red light area and her mother was trafficked at age, I think age 12 or 13. So the trafficking part is so more connected to me because my grandmother was trafficked. She didn't have any choice in her life. So that's how she became bar dancer. And it's been almost eight and nine years I have been in Kranti and with the support from Kranti I got educated like till 12th grade and before that I never got opportunity to do my study and everything. Even I didn't get opportunity to explore what exactly I want to become and what are my dreams and how I want to give to community back. Certainly there is a lot that goes into bringing two people over from India for a four-month internship, not least of which is the cost of such an endeavor. However, everyone, including the community, pitched in to help. We were just immediately thrilled. Our board was immediately thrilled with the idea. We didn't 
have that in our program plans for the year. And so we had to do a quick turnaround and, and think about how to allocate funds. And fortunately, we were able to do the New Hampshire Gibbs program. We were able to make raising resources for this project the focus of that goal. And our community really got together around the idea of bringing Fuji and Shital here to the States. I think the outpouring of support has been incredible and inspiring for us. And now it's just amazing to be able to be here together, learning together. And I can't wait to see where this partnership is going to go. Kranti is a non-governmental organization based in Mumbai's red light areas. They are working to empower girls to become agents of social change in their communities and provides them with the same opportunities as people from more privileged backgrounds. Kranti means revolutionary in English, so we all call ourselves Kranti Karis, that means revolutionaries. And also, like, Kranti believes that we are from our community and we can make the change because we know the problems. In service of making Kranti a more dynamic and influential organization, Ashi and Shital are hoping to learn everything they can about the Freedom Cafe. When I first arrived, they were behind the counter making drinks and managing the front end on their own. It is clear that they are here to work and learn, hoping to make great change back home. Oh, it's been really amazing. We are going step by step. So our first step was to know about cafe. What is it? Like every little things, I guess we are success in that. (laughs) Because it's been a month we are here in cafe. Every day we come, we open. So it's like, it's like our cafe now. Not like that. (laughs) (laughs) It feels like it's more connected to us. And learning here and coming every day and doing all the things, it comes from heart. Not like we just are here to learn and everything. Even we are really connected to this Freedom Campus mission really we want to end human trafficking, whether it's like in New Hampshire, whether it's in India, whether it's in Nepal, Bangladesh, wherever it is, we really want to. There are already discussions on how Kranti can replicate this back in Mumbai to build on the success that the Freedom Cafe has found here in New Hampshire. The idea is that it will be a healing space, a space where the community can connect and share ideas. Ideas, share ideas, even uh, share their experience. Look how here we have, like everyone comes and share their experience and uh, what they are feeling and if they need any help and all the things. So we same we want like that space in our community also, like people should come and they share, they feel the space, it's the spaces where we can share our, our life stories and what from where we can get healed and we can trust the person and we can learn from them. We actually, I mean, this is the like dream cafe we wanted in India, yeah. in, in our space. And this is a exact uh, dream cafe. And yeah. we like, when we entered here and even the open mic night, it was like so much. We, we both were shocked when we actually came to this place and we attended open mic night, even uh, like a farmer's market. One area that needs to be well thought out is how to obtain initial seed money to create this first cafe. Brian has an idea for that too. One of the projects that we're working on here is connected to the university's Center for Social Innovation Entrepreneurship. They run the Social Venture Innovation Challenge, the SBIC. 
And that is an opportunity to share an important and urgent issue and your vision for how to change it with the potential of winning funds for startup and for supporting the project. So we're going to collaborate and enter that project together. And we're just hoping that we'll be able to build more capacity to make this vision happen. People realize that we all have a role, an opportunity, and in some ways a responsibility to help address human trafficking. And one of the ways that we can be empowered is to recognize that we can consume consciously. And that can feel overwhelming certainly and so we encourage people you know you're coming in here you're doing something that you already love to do something that is comfortable and normal part of your routine and if we can just build a little bit onto that to be thoughtful that this coffee is supporting the farmers it's supporting the processors along the way it's also uh, supporting additional efforts to address human trafficking in the world and so you can feel good about that and as you leave the space maybe there'll be another item that you think about and gradually you build up your your muscle as a conscious consumer to understand the businesses that you're buying from and how they are either supporting or combating forced labor around the globe I asked Shital and Ashi about what they hoped to achieve by opening a similar cafe back home, and their response struck me, as these women think and feel in the same way as someone much older and more mature than their ages would indicate. Someone said for Freedom Cafe that it's not an institute, it's family. family. We want that. We don't want an institute or like people can actually, it should be feel like family, that everyone is connected to each other, they can share if they are bullied, if they are abused, if they want to share anything, if they have different uh, talent, they can come and share. Without a doubt, the opportunity for these two organizations is ready to take off. Brian summed up well the power of the Department of State International Visitor Leadership Program to create opportunities for other programs like this to come together and flourish. The World Affairs Council, in my experience, is really amazing at connecting people who are change makers around the globe and building a network that never would have happened were it not for your work. And it was so neat, you know, to to meet that group of people, to meet Ani and to have this sense that their organization is looking to create opportunity for people in and then the Freedom Cafe, who's looking to create opportunity for students and for the movement and, and address human trafficking. And because of the World Affairs Council kind of bringing us together, those opportunities were able to collide and create new vision and allow both of our organizations to move forward with some dreams that we never would have envisioned by the connection that you helped make. We want to wish Ashi and Shital the best in their efforts to build up the programs of Kranti when they return in December. We also hope that the U.S. Department of State's International Visitor Leadership Program will continue to provide opportunities for people from around the world to meet, engage, and work together on solving some of the most pressing issues we all face. Thanks again for listening to the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire's Global in the Granite State podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it and learned a little something, and that you will join us at our upcoming programs here in the fall. More information can be found on our website at 
www.wacnh.org. Until next time.